Good morning, Cornerstone. The Bible says that we should laugh with those who laugh and we should mourn with those who mourn. And this morning we are mourning with the people of Monterey Park in Los Angeles, California, as they've experienced a mass shooting that has left at least, at least so far 10 people dead as they celebrated the Asian holiday, the Lunar New Year. And our hearts go out to them, the multitude of families that will be affected by this tragedy. We don't know why this occurred, but whatever the reason, we pray that God would rid our world of hatred and resentment and anger and violence and bias. We pray that God would deliver us from all evil. And that's our prayer this morning. So in last week, Paul pointed out to us the hypocrisy of the deeply religious person who relies upon the rules and upon the law to be found pleasing to God. Rules that seem to apply to everyone but themselves. Last week, Paul showed us the fallacy of self-righteousness. And he emphasized for us the stark contrast between interior faith and external religion. He said, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. And circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. You recall that for the purpose of our own application, we exchange the term Jew for the deeply religious person. As I said last week, that while Paul's observation concerning the deeply religious person could be applied to us today, Paul here is specifically commenting on the Jewish religion. And just so there's no misunderstanding, today Paul wants to make a clarification. And in this clarification, Paul is not talking about the Orthodox Jew only. But Paul is talking today about the Jewish people in general. He poses this question in verse 1 of chapter 3. What advantage does the Jew have? What makes the Jewish person exceptional? What is so exceedingly remarkable about the Jew? Furthermore, Paul asks, what is the benefit of circumcision? This religious external ritual that God ordained to Abraham and to all of his descendants, what is the benefit of circumcision? How are we to perceive these two external factors of race and religion as it pertains to the Jews? And these are serious questions that demand answers. And as we review Paul's assessment of the Jewish religion in chapter 2, one could very easily assume that the answer would be none at all. The Jews have no particular advantage, no. 
and the Jews have no particular benefit above any other people group. When you read chapter 2 alone, it seems like that would be Paul's conclusion. But surprisingly, Paul says that the Jews' advantage or the Jewish advantage is, verse 2, great in every respect. Huh? After all he just said about the Jewish religion in chapter 2, Paul says they still have an advantage and it is great in every respect. But why? Well, Paul says that they were entrusted with the actual words of God. That's a big deal. Paul says because over a 2,000 year period, God had inspired Jewish men in particular to be the messengers, to be the spokespersons of his love to all mankind. That's a big deal. And this truth cannot be understated even though this truth should not be overstated. Meaning that we do not need to read more into this fact than what Paul is saying. And what Paul is saying is that God entrusted his actual words to the people of Israel. This is a great honor, this is a great privilege. In fact, there are many within the Christian faith who believe that because of their service, mankind is somehow indebted to the Jews. That this fact makes them exceptional among humankind. This is why lately we've seen so many prominent individuals and so many people groups trying to usurp the title, trying to usurp the role of the Jews. They assume that the Jews are superior they want to be superior. It's also why throughout the ages we've witnessed the fatal resentment of nations against the Jews. People seeking to annihilate them, to take their place, all because they mistakenly believe that the Jews are indeed superior and they want to take their crown. But even if they took their crown, what would be their reward? Even if they confiscated the name of the Jews and made it their own, what would they benefit from that? Even if they repopulated the land of Israel and rebuilt the temple, what would be their benefit? What would be their advantage? Nothing at all. Why not? Because the benefit and the great advantage of the Jewish people is not into the future, it is in the past. It already happened. The actual words of God have already been transmitted through them and the canon is already closed. God has already spoken through their prophets. God has already spoken through their holy men and he speaks through them in that way no longer. The benefit and the advantage is the fact that God chose to speak through them at all. That's the benefit. And even though God speaks through them no longer by inspiration, the fact will forever remain that God did indeed speak through them at certain points in history. And that is an advantage of its own. That is an advantage and a benefit that can never be taken away from them. 
And all of us should readily acknowledge their past usefulness. All of us should readily acknowledge their supreme value that they've added to all the nations. That we have received the message of God through them. That simple acknowledgement is their benefit. That simple acknowledgement is their advantage. And it is an advantage not only to the religious Jew, but to all of the people who sprang from Abraham. Whether they're religious or not. After all, there are some Jews that are Muslim. Did you know that? Of course there are. There are some Jews who are Christian, some Hindi, some Buddhist, and there are even some Jews who are atheists. Not all Jewish people ascribe to the Jewish religion. So Paul says, what then? If some did not believe, if they all did not ascribe to the Jewish religion, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Interesting question. Let's ask the question a different way. Their unfaithfulness to God will not strip them of their advantage and of their benefit, will it? No, Paul says. Far from it. Because God must prove to be true. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. God promised Jacob that a nation and a community of nations would come from him. God promised David that the house of Israel would be established forever. Those are the promises of God. And even though Abraham appears to have had a problem with lying, even though Jacob was a trickster and a liar, even though David was an adulterer, even though each of these men proved to be unfaithful to their God, the promises of God remained in place. And God's promises must prove to be true, Paul says, even if his people prove to be untrue. God's word must prove to be true even if every person, he says, be found a liar. Even if every person reneges on their part of the agreement, God does not back out of his self-imposed obligations. God remains faithful even when his own people prove to be faithless. And this is the standard. This is the eternal way that we are to perceive God as being true to his word. As it is written, Paul says, so that you are justified in your words and so that you prevail when you are judged. This, this is a very subtle warning for us. Because even when we're walking with God in our lives, life can be full of surprises. There are pitfalls and there are mishaps. There is trouble and there is loss. And things don't always go the way that I may have hoped that they would. And sometimes it can feel like the God who bore me has abandoned me to the wheels of fate. He promises me prosperity, but very often I am in lack. 
He promises me peace, but I experience sleepless nights. He guarantees us a way out of our troubles, but like a broken record, we return to our vomit over and over again. We never get the breakthrough from our habits, our hurts, and our hangups, even though he promised. Sometimes it may appear that his promises will not come to pass. Sometimes it looks like his promises may not be true. But Paul warns us here that even when it looks like God has failed you, and even when we feel more cursed than we feel blessed, even when we feel more lost than we feel found, we must never give in to our grim assessments of the truthfulness of God. God must prove to be true. Even if it means that every person, every experience, every situation, every external factor must prove to be a lie. And this is the faith that does not judge its situation based on external factors. But even in the midst of chaos and the consistent turbulence of life, faith declares that God is and God has always been true to his word. This is the faith, Paul says, that will be justified by God. This is the faith that will prevail before him on the day of judgment. A faith and a perspective of God that never calls the veracity of his promises into question. God is always true, even when I myself prove to be a liar. God is always just, even when I prove to be unjust. God is always righteous, even when I feel unrighteous. Mm -hmm. That's all simple enough, right? But this brings us, brothers and sisters, to a fork in the road. And at this juncture, we come to recognize that there are two sides to the deeply religious person. And that the road that leads to salvation runs evenly and narrowly between them. You see, on the one hand, we have the deeply religious person who relies upon their understanding of the law. And any believer who's been around for any amount of time, you know that we do not rely upon the law. We do not rely upon works for salvation. That's the obvious deeply religious person. But on the other side of the coin, we have the deeply religious person who does not rely on the law at all, but relies upon sin. What you say? Theologians would call this person an antinomian, meaning this person is against the law. This deeply religious person believes that it is by and because of their sinfulness that they access the grace of God which leads to salvation. Interesting. And Paul introduces us here to this mindset with a question that he asks us from their perspective. He asks this question in verse 5. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, What shall we say? Let's evaluate that question just a little bit because in chapter two, Paul dismantled the idea that obedience to the external law could lead to salvation. That's concluded. 
But this conclusion could lead one to assume then that disobedience to the law can somehow bring glory to God. That disobedience to God's law emphasizes God's righteousness. Or that our sins gain us access to God's grace. Let me say it more plainly. This deeply religious person believes that the grace of God is irrelevant where there is no sin and that the only way God can demonstrate his grace is by the forgiveness of sins. So that sin is essential to grace. So that sin is necessary. Hmm. Hey, if my unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what is the problem? God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? After all, why would God punish my sin when it is only because of my sin that God is able to demonstrate his righteousness? I'm doing God a favor by sinning. You may not see yourself in this, but I, I don't want, don't, don't, don't go past it too fast. You got to sit with this one for a minute because there's something very subtle about it. There's something very manipulative about, manipulative about this kind of thinking, about this mindset that I believe many Christians fall prey to. I'm doing God a favor by sitting. I'm making you look good. We don't say it just like that. But to a large degree, there are many believers who feel this way. These are the deeply religious people. You know them when you see them. These are the deeply religious people who are always harping and complaining about how bad they are. <laughs> I don't do anything right. Yesterday I lied. Today I was angry while I was in rush hour traffic. They're always complaining about their sins, always eager to confess every misstep. And they do it because they believe that God is glorified when they lay all of their sins bare. And by laying their sins bare, they have even more reason to magnify God's grace. But always and only in contrast to their sin. And without this contrast, they think that the grace of God is unnecessary. You got to watch this one. Their thought process goes like this in verse 7. Listen, if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still also being judged as a sinner? If my sin brings you glory, why are you judging me? What's the problem here? After all, my sinfulness magnifies your glory. Makes you look good. I sin and you come down and you save me and forgive me by your grace and you get all the credit for loving a wretch like me despite my many moral defects. My sin makes you look good. My sinfulness, my moral deficiency therefore is my badge of honor. It proves the fact that God is gracious to fallen humanity and without my sin, grace has no platform upon which to demonstrate its potency. Don't you get it, God? 
And the person who reasons this way says what Paul says in verse 8. I must do evil that good may come of it. <laughs> yeah. That's that other deeply religious person. I must do evil that good may come of it. And as we go through the book of Romans, you're going to see that these are the two kinds of deeply religious people that Paul keeps hitting on over and over again. He keeps taking turns. He hits on the deeply religious person who relies upon the law, then he hits upon the deeply religious person who relies upon sin. Over and over, back and forth. In another place in the book, in Romans, he actually says, asks the question, shall we sin that grace may abound? <laughs> In other words, if we want more grace, don't we need to sin? That's necessary. That's necessary. <laughs> My sinfulness is necessary to the grace of God. This is kind of technical, but that's what he's saying. In the book of Romans, Paul addresses these two types of deeply religious people. The one who relies upon the law to access the eternal reward and the one who depends on their sins to access the grace of God. Both are deeply religious and both, Paul says, will be condemned. The one will be condemned because he depended on his adherence to the law to access the love of God. The other will be condemned because she relied upon her sinfulness to access his grace. Well, well wait a minute. Wait a minute then, wait a minute. This is what we preach though, isn't it? That the grace of God is initiated because of the sins of men, right? That's the way we preach it. That the grace of God is activated because of the sins of men. That sin is the paradigm through which we understand God's grace. It's the only way to experience the grace of God through sin. Sin is necessary. But can the goodness of God exist without the sinfulness of man? Can the righteousness of God exist without the unrighteousness of man? Can the light of God still be relevant even in the absence of my own darkness? And is the grace of God even necessary without the sins of men? <laughs> hmm. A very famous preacher, I won't say his name, a very famous preacher would say the answer is no. That the grace of God is unnecessary where there is no sin. That it is because of sin that God's grace has come to us. But is that what the Bible says? Is the grace of God necessary even without the sins of men? And the answer is yes, absolutely. Biblical proof of that fact. But first I want to demonstrate it through a fairy tale. I want to tell you the story of the three little pigs the rated G version. Once upon a time, there was a mother pig with three little pigs. When it was time for the little pigs to live on their own, their mother told them, whatever you do, 
Do the best you can. The first little pig built the house of straw. It wasn't very strong, but it was quick to build, and the little pig could spend more time playing, so he was happy. The second little pig built the house of sticks. It also wasn't very strong, but it was quick to build, and the little pig could spend more time playing, and he also was happy. The third little pig built his house out of bricks. He remembered his mother's words and worked hard to build the best house he could. The brick house was strong and sturdy, and the third little pig was very pleased. One day, the house of straw fell down, and the little pig ran all the way to his brother's house of sticks. The next day, the house of sticks fell down, and the two little pigs ran all the way to their brother's house of brick. The next day, the three little pigs invited their mother over for dinner. She, she said to them, you see, it is just as I told you. The way to get along in the world is to do things as well as you can. Fortunately, the little pigs learned their lesson and they lived happily ever after. That's a good story, right? I enjoyed that story as a kid. But if you recall, the original version of this story, you already know that there is something and there is someone missing in this version of the story. Who knows what that is? Hmm? The big bad wolf. The big bad wolf is not mentioned in this rated G version of the story. And yet, even though the big and bad and huffing and puffing wolf is not a part of this version, the moral of the story remains the same. The way to get along in the world is to do things as well as you can. These words spoken by the mother pig, who seems to get no credit for her major role in the story, these words are just as true with a wolf as they are without a wolf. The wolf in this story is unnecessary. The story does not depend on the introduction of a wolf. The maxim doesn't need the wolf to prove itself to be true. And in God's plan of salvation, sin is like the big bad wolf. Present, but not essential to the original story. The salvation story of God is not dependent upon sin to emphasize the power of God's grace. It is not necessary. The grace of God is just as necessary and just as good even without the introduction of sin. But this fact is very difficult for humans to comprehend, very difficult for humans to embrace. You see, because for us, every story has to have a hero and a villain. And in most cases, the greater the villain, the greater the hero. But without an adversary, the hero seems bland and uninteresting. And to us, the hero is only a hero because of the villain. And without a villain, the story is boring. It's going nowhere. It is mundane. It is uninteresting. Hmm. And thinking about it from this perspective, maybe it was the need for excitement. Maybe it was the need for a more interesting story that led to the fall of Adam and Eve. Think about this. There they were in the garden living the perfect 
story. Plenty of food to eat, no bills to worry about, plenty of water to drink, beautiful scenery to admire, and to top it all off, they took long walks with God in the cool of the day. What a perfect story that is. No sin, no evil, no problems. But maybe they got bored with that. Maybe they needed to spice things up a bit. Maybe a life without problems, a life without worries, and no hills to conquer left them feeling mundane. That's human nature. And God knew that. God knew that they would get bored with their present state. And so God provided for them in the Garden of Eden two opportunities to make their lives different and more interesting. What were those two things? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He knew they would get bored after a while with just walking around singing songs all the time. He knew they needed something interesting and he gives them these two opportunities. You choose. The tree of life would have given them eternal life. But eternal life is not the same as never ending life. We've talked about this before. Had Adam and Eve never eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Adam and Eve would have never died. But still they would not have experienced eternal life. Because eternal life is not only longevity of days. Eternal life is the highest quality of life. And Adam and Eve did not have the highest quality of life. How do I know that? Because the highest quality of life exists only in God. And by giving them access to the tree of life, God in his grace was offering them the opportunity to become one with himself and to share his life. Then they would have experienced eternal life, which can be described as nothing less than the life of God. That is eternal life. That is the only eternal life. Adam and Eve were experiencing God on the outside. He walked with them in the cool of the day. He talked with them, but he did not dwell within them. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God that is eternal life. And they had the opportunity before sin ever came into play. They had the opportunity to experience eternal life. It's the same opportunity that God by his grace makes available to each of us today through his son Jesus Christ, who himself is the tree of life. This same grace was extended to Adam and Eve before sin even existed in the world. Hmm. So that sin is not essential to the original story of salvation or to the grace of God. Just as sickness is not essential to good health. Two weeks ago, I was sick. I was very sick. And for the most part, my health is pretty good. But I fought with a sickness for five to six days a week or so ago. 
And on Sunday, the sickness had finally left me and I was so grateful. I felt so good. I felt so healthy. I was more grateful for my health, my good health, than I have been in a very long time. You know, you, you, you normally don't think about your good health. When you're feeling good, you don't think about how good you feel. Only when you get sick do you appreciate good health. It shouldn't be that way, but that's the way it tends to be. For some reason, we humans depend on sickness to help us appreciate good health. When the fact of the matter is that good health is still good even if I never experience sickness. And the grace and the glory of God was just as effective even before sin was ever introduced into the world. I shouldn't need to get sick to appreciate feeling well. I shouldn't need to experience a mugging to appreciate being safe. And I should not have to sin in order to appreciate the grace of God. Because God's grace is not primarily God's response to sin. God's grace is God's primary response to me. You got to go back and listen to this one again on YouTube. God's grace is not his primary response to my sin. God's grace is God's response to me with sin or without sin. Sometimes we Christians but feel like grace is only necessary to address sin. God is saying, no, that's not true. If you had no sin, if you never sinned, if you were born perfect, you still could not inherit eternal life. Eternal life is not something that you receive as a reward for having a sinless life. No. You only receive eternal life by the grace of God. <laughs> With sin, Without sin, it doesn't matter, and it didn't matter. <laughs> I close with this verse from Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4, which says that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. <laughs> Before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Jesus Christ before the world ever was and long before sin made its debut upon the stages of our hearts. Long before original sin that we love to talk about. Long before original sin, there stands the preeminence of the grace of God. Without sin. It is not necessary, and frankly, I think it would be unhelpful for younger believers to try to understand or to embrace this truth too quickly. There is much to be gained from our considering the relationship of grace to sin and of sin to grace. That is very important that we understand how that works. 
But as Hebrews chapter six encourages us more mature believers, there comes a time when we must leave the elementary teachings regarding Jesus Christ and we must go on to perfection. We must let go of the paradigm that juxtaposes sin and grace. And we must embrace the grace of God without the slightest acknowledgement of sin. The mature believer is the one who through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ no longer views their relationship to God through the sin-grace prism. That is elementary. The mature believer reapplies the grace of God not only to and for sin, but most importantly as the vehicle through which we attain to eternal life without sin. What I'm saying to you is that sin plays too great of a role in our doctrine. Sin plays too great of a role in our theology as if we don't understand that sin has not always been here and that grace was in the world long before sin. <laughs> and that the grace of God is useful for more than just the forgiveness of sin. But it is the means by which we attain to eternal life. This is the original intent of the grace of God. And sin is merely a late player to the story of our salvation, permanently a part of the salvific plan, but in no way is sin essential to God's original design. I don't need to sin to bring glory to God. I don't need to sin in order to magnify the grace of God in my life or in my heart. I need his grace even when I'm not sinning. <laughs> this is why Paul the Apostle will tell us later that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. There is much more grace than there is sin. Grace is the preeminent function of the salvation plan. Sin. Sin is merely incidental. Because even if we have no sin, brothers and sisters, we still need to be transformed. We can only be transformed by the grace of God. Were this not the case, Adam and Eve would still be alive. <laughs> Adam and Eve still needed to be transformed, even though they had no sin. What am I saying? I'm saying that the objective is not sinlessness. The objective is faith in the grace of God alone. And there comes a time in the life of the person who is growing in Jesus Christ, we must move away from the ABCs of our faith and begin to commune with God without this prism, without this paradigm of grace and faith, but just the abundance of the grace of God. Apply to every aspect of my life, not just sin, but every aspect of my life. You do not need to sin in order to appreciate the grace and the love of your God. And it is a sign of sure maturity when you come to understand God's grace in broader terms than only as an antidote to sin. 
The grace of God was needed before sin was even a problem. And to consider the purpose of grace beyond sin will open up before you an entirely new way of understanding, of relating, and of appreciating God. This message may not be for everybody. There may be some who can't really wrap their minds around what's been said today. But there are some of us in this room whom God is calling higher and saying, we're not going to spend the next 20 to 30 years rehearsing grace and sin and grace and sin and grace and get another book on grace and sin. It's time to go higher. It's time to leave the doctrines and the theologies and to experience this eternal life <laughs> beyond the paradigm of sin and grace. As I was preparing this, I knew that people would be looking at me just like you're looking right now. I could tell that these concepts would be kind of confusing, kind of difficult to absorb. So I'm hoping that each of us will go this week and we'll listen to this sermon again. And we'll listen to it again. And as we go through the book of Romans, when Paul says it again, I'm going to remind you of it. When we get to the place where Paul says, I was alive without the law once. But then sin came and I died. Oh, oh, sin came. <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about that much later. We were alive without the law once. Did you know that? That people were alive without the law? Did you know that? All the book of Genesis, there was no law, and yet there was grace. Paul is going to teach us later that where there is no law, there is no sin. <laughs> huh? Where there is no law, there is no sin. I called Abraham a liar earlier. God would say, no, Calvin, he couldn't have lied because there was no law that said, thou shalt not bear false witness. There was no law, there was no rule, and yet there was the grace of God. <laughs> and so that's the lesson for today, one for you to think about and ponder, one that can, can grow some spiritual hairs on your chest <laughs> if you spend some time pondering this truth. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the mystery of your grace. Thank you for your loving kindness for us. Thank you for your tender mercy and your love that existed long before we fell. Long before sin. You are the ancient of days. And your grace is as ancient as you. Father, I pray that you will help each one of us to begin to experience the broader truth of your grace and not simply apply it to our sins. I pray for any deeply religious person who believes they have to always be aware of all of their sins and always be confessing all of their sins in order to bring you glory. I pray that you will give that person eyes to see that their relationship with you is not based upon some sin grace prism 
but that they are justified in Jesus Christ already. That conversation is over. I pray that you would invite them into a greater experience of your spirit, of your love, and of your grace beyond the concept and the confines of sin. In Jesus' name, amen.